This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My guest this week is a freelance journalist and former editor-in-chief of the BBC Russian service Moscow Bureau, Konstantin Egert. Konstantin, welcome to the show. Uh, hello, Nathan. The tensions on the Ukrainian-Russian border have rapidly escalated over the last couple of weeks. There have been multiple Russian shelling incidents along the Donbass border, which were reported on Thursday. The NATO Secretary-General, Jens Stoltenberg, says that Russia is trying to stage a pretext for an invasion of Ukraine. How do you assess the situation at the moment? Well, look, I am still convinced that Vladimir Putin still didn't take the decision to basically launch a massive invasion of Ukraine. I think that that is not on the cards. And the fact that he is in the last few days heavily concentrating on the area of Donbass in eastern Ukraine, uh, part of it is controlled by the Russians and uh, they installed two quasi-independent republics there that are clamoring for Russian recognition. In fact, it's just, you know, puppet states that are completely controlled by the Russian military. Uh, that the fact that the Kremlin is concentrating on them uh, tells me that uh, the aim of this exercise is, A, to convince Western public opinion that Russia uh, is not going to let the situation go. Number two, to create an impression inside Russia that Putin is defending Russians. And one has to remember that uh, in these areas of Eastern Ukraine, hundreds of thousands of Russian passports were distributed to Ukrainian citizens. So now Russia can claim that it defends its own citizens. And thirdly, uh, Putin wants to avoid sanctions, but create a situation in which uh, Ukraine will be pressured by the West. And uh, I think that claiming that there's a humanitarian catastrophe in this part of Eastern Ukraine, and that he takes these areas under protection without recognizing these puppet states, uh, is or may be a way for him to deepen the rift in the West where there is no complete unity on what to do with Moscow's policy, uh, and to launch yet another mediation effort I don't know, by the Germans, for example, to try and pressure Kiev, the governments in Kiev, President Vladimir Zelensky, into fulfilling at least one point from the Minsk agreements. Then he was, could claim victory, could claim that he managed to succeed to pressure Ukraine into concessions and probably cool the situation off for some time. I think this mm. 
maybe the, a more realistic development. Okay, so evidently then, Vladimir Putin's intention, uh, certainly internationally, is to project a sense of division within within the West and uh, almost scare NATO in some respects. But domestically, what does Vladimir Putin actually gain from invading Ukraine? In his view, how would this benefit Russia? I think Russians, as most peoples in world history, like their wars, small, victorious, and preferably bloodless, for, for themselves at least. And uh, if you invade Ukraine, uh, if Putin decides on that, this is not going to be the case. As a former army officer, I can tell you, uh, 130,000 people, 150,000 personnel, even 200,000, is not enough to keep uh, the largest European country, Ukraine is the largest European country by territory, uh, except Russia, mm-hmm. uh, with a population of 44 million people under control. You either have to keep an equivalent of of Hitler's Wehrmacht there uh, all the time against resistance, against Western sanctions, against uh, guerrilla warfare, or if you just, even if you invade Kiev and take it and then leave and after having installed a puppet government, well, this government will fall immediately the moment you leave. So I think that Putin realizes that and I'd be surprised if his generals didn't tell him that. Uh, I suppose his um, calculation uh, of trying to divide the West, you're quite right about it. He calculates, uh, he counts on dividing the West. Uh, And I think that in December, when he presented his so-called ultimatum uh, to Western powers, essentially demanding for Russia a veto power in NATO. I think he miscalculated. He didn't think that in the end, in, even in spite of the of German dithering and stuff like that, uh, the United States will be able to master this kind of coalition of people pushing back, nations pushing back against Moscow. And now he has to get out of the situation without looking weak and being able to sell to the Russian public that he got something out of it. Of course, Russia is not a democracy. He's not facing real elections. He controls the media and so forth. But, uh, and he managed to actually to convince the Russian public opinion that uh, all this is fault of the West. But he still has to present results. And I suppose that he is playing around this idea of protecting Russians in Eastern Ukraine without going too far, without incurring major sanctions, which I'm certain Uh, will be enacted the moment even one Russian tank crosses Ukrainian frontier once again. I mean, we have to remember, this is the war that's been going on since 2014. So on on the point about sanctions then, the UK, the US, many other NATO member states are threatening to impose sanctions, as, as you say, on Russia, if there is any incursion into Ukraine. But what impact would sanctions actually have? And would the imposition of sanctions not actually see Putin wish to retaliate on the West? Well, it's difficult for Putin to retaliate against the West economically. Well, he can stop uh, supplying gas to Europe, Mm -hmm. but that will create uh, a major crisis on the European Mm -hmm. continent, of course. But that will hit his own uh, purse, first and foremost of all. And secondly, then the Americans will come let's say to the Germans and say, well, we told you so, you can't rely on the guy. And uh, I think that in terms of military retaliation, well, Putin can invade Ukraine. He can try to do some kind of uh, 
he can be after something, say, on the borders of the Baltic states of Poland, but this is NATO territory. And I think in, in the current situation, uh, NATO will fight back. I, I, I hope Putin is not trying to, uh, to, to, to provoke Third World War. There is not much that Putin can do. Okay, major cyber attacks. We can imagine that. Paralyzing Congress. He already played with paralyzing some parts of the, say, U.S. energy system. But then the West can retaliate and retaliate powerfully against Russian cyber targets. So I suppose that this time sanctions would be much more serious than they were in 2014, when the weak Obama administration was in power, when, um, when actually it was a surprise for everybody. For everybody. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, Putin, by prolonging this process, gave the West a lot of time to prepare. And frankly speaking, the fact that, uh, that, that the United Kingdom uh, is planning on uh, stopping the practice of issuing the so-called golden visas for investors, which 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 is a favorite uh, pathway for Russian oligarchs into into the United Kingdom. Uh, this is significant, although a lot of them are already in, and you'll have to deal with them. But yeah. still, that's that's the first step. I suppose that uh, that this time sanctions could be really painful. Okay, well. Uh, ju- just on the, the UK response there, you mentioned that uh, our Home Secretary, Priti Patel, has uh, cancelled these golden visas, as they're called. And, you know, there's been a really strong response from the West. There was that uh, iconic picture taken just a couple of weeks ago of Ukrainian parliamentarians waving flags of the, the UK, the US, Canada, Poland, other NATO members. So do you think the West is responding to this crisis in the correct way? Do you think the response is strong enough? I have to say that, in my view, the West's response to what happened is surprisingly coherent. At least it's much more coherent than it was when Putin invaded Georgia in 2008 or when he annexed the Crimea and invaded Ukraine, in fact, in 2014. Uh, And... Well, no matter what his domestic problems are, I think Boris Johnson showed himself to be a world-level statesman in his understanding uh, of how Russia works and uh, how Putin's Russia works. And uh, I think that in such circumstances, this idea that Putin's idea uh, to show that the West is disunited, that it's split, that it can't act, pull its act together, I think it, it, it didn't come to anything. Because even if you look at the German position, Germany is now an odd man out in NATO. It's, uh, it's uh, isolated in its appeasing position. Even the French are much more robust in uh, dealing with Putin. And by the way, I mean, people frequently say, well, you know, Paris and Berlin, they always want to appease the Russians. Well, uh, France and Germany are very different in their attitudes to Russia because France is a global power with a global power projection, amazing navy, nuclear energy, which is completely energy self-sufficient, nuclear deterrent and the permanent place uh, at the United Nations table. Germany is, is not such a nation, let's put it like that. It's hobbled by uh, the war guilt, by the big business, because in fact, well, I mean, rephrasing an old American saying, you can say what's good for Volkswagen is good for Germany. And thirdly, it may, that may sound quite surprising by a very, very significant amount of anti-Americanism that exists both on the right and on the left of German political spectrum. Uh, so in this respect, I think that 
Putin provoked a situation which divisions are visible, but you know, it's like in a household. When you hold some problem inside the family for a long time, and then suddenly something provokes a situation in which everyone sees that this problem exists when you deal with it. And I think that, that in this respect, Putin committed a strategic mistake. And of course, within this crisis, it isn't just Russia and Ukraine against the West in this. There is also another actor, and that's Belarus. The Belarusian president, Alexander Lukashenko, he's been aligning himself very, very closely with Vladimir Putin, uh, in particular since uh, he won his a very questionable election in August 2020. So with, with this closer relationship with Vladimir Putin and with Russia, what's Belarus's role in, in this crisis? What does Belarus and Lukashenko gain from the situation in Ukraine? <laughs> Nathan, I love your understatements. I love them. <laughs> Alexander Lukashenko is a crooked dictator who's been running Belarus for more than a quarter of a century now mm-hmm. and who stole an election, killed his own citizens, totally reliant on Vladimir Putin for finance and energy supplies, runs a brutal police state in the middle of Europe, and uh, is trying, actually, to preserve uh, some kind of semblance of sovereignty. Uh, And uh, he is providing Mr. Putin, and has been providing it in in the last few weeks, with a very convenient uh, deployment area in a country which previously uh, always said that it wanted to be neutral. And what this how this helps Putin, if you look at the map, if the listeners look at the map, it creates a much longer front, which the Ukrainians, in case of, of an invasion, uh, would have had to, to, to defend. And uh, I think that this Putin likes, and what Putin will continue to do, he'll continue to pressure Lukashenko into, A, granting a so-called status of forces agreement, essentially granting Russia... Uh, right to, uh, to to create military bases on uh, Belarusian territory. And the second thing, which I think Putin would like, he would like Belarus to adopt Russian ruble as national currency. Now Belarus has its own ruble. And that will basically finish uh, uh, Belarusian sovereignty uh, for a long time. Uh, well, they will continue to have a flag, you know, national anthem, even the president. But they will not be independent. I think this is the goal of Putin, to actually corner Lukashenko, who is always playing games between Russia and the West until this fateful election in 2020, which he lost, uh, and make Belarus a de facto, I don't know, colony protector, call it what you want. It already is, uh, in fact, but Putin, you know, he's a lawyer. He graduated from the Leningrad State University Law Faculty before joining the KGB. So he wants everything on paper and signed. Right. And as part of this wanting everything on paper, signed official deals, something else that happened over the last couple of weeks was Vladimir Putin making a trip to China, using the opportunity of the Winter Olympics to announce this new energy partnership with President Xi Jinping and creates this new Russian-Chinese gas pipeline. Now, again, how does the situation in Ukraine impact on China? And could we see a a potential Russia-China alliance and see them join forces up against the West, maybe? Well, first and foremost of all, China doesn't have allies. It only has vessels. It's a Chinese policy not to enter alliances. 
Um, I think what Putin did uh, not only is a huge diplomatic mistake, uh, which will work against generations of Russians to come, uh, but it also is final proof, if anyone had any doubt for the last few years at least, that Russian foreign policy, Russia's security policy, Russia's even foreign economic policy, its, its economic deals, have nothing to do with Russian national interest. And they have everything to do with protection of this political regime in Russia. Frankly speaking, nothing else matters. Mm -hmm. So uh, what happened was a hasty attempt to show the United States and uh, its European allies in of Putin's ultimatum and basically NATO's and the United States' rejection of this ultimatum that, hey, guys, I have allies. I have Lukashenko, who's in my pocket, but it doesn't matter. And I have the great empire of China, so I'll go to Emperor Xi. And we'll write out this amazing joint statement on, on 100 pages uh, with the litany of complaints against the United States, which that all dictators always have against democracies. Um, they mention in this statement of Taiwan being undoubtedly an integral part of China. But when you look for the word Crimea in the text, which would have been important for Putin, and in an equal partnership between allies, I mean, there has to be a give and take. You give something to me, I give something to you. Crimea is very important for Putin. That is not such a word. So China continues its policy of non-recognition of the annexation. I mean, it's good from the point of view of international law, but I mean, it definitely is an unequal trade. And also, uh, Putin continues to invite, uh, there is a mention of that, invites the Chinese uh, to explore the Russian Arctic. Mm. And uh, probably the listeners don't know, but China has huge designs of the Arctic, not only in terms of energy supplies, uh, offshore deposits of oil and gas, but also for military purposes. It's been retooling its uh, icebreaker fleet with, um, with basically military capacity, leading military uh, vessels through the Arctic, you know, back ice, mm. uh, which is gradually melting because of, the, of, of climate change. And uh, basically, when you look at this statement, uh, it's all hot air from the Chinese and real concessions from Putin. So uh, in order to stand up to the US, Putin is making Russia subservient to China. That will have long-term consequences. So if Putin does invade Ukraine, would that essentially give China the green light to mount a full-scale invasion of Taiwan? Uh, I'm not a big specialist mm -hmm. on China and Taiwan. Definitely not specialist okay. on China, specialist on the Middle East by my education. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, my suspicion is that the Chinese will not act immediately. Mm -hmm. Also, the situations are different. And also, of course, uh, the United States is committed to defending Taiwan. I cannot imagine any US president uh, basically ignoring it because Congress will push uh, the executive into uh, you know, taking up arms. So I think the Chinese will think twice uh, about that. But such an, the Chinese will be watching such an operation, of course, very, very closely. Uh, if it is a failed operation, if the invasion doesn't work out, which I think will be exactly the outcome of such an adventure. Then they will think twice. Also, they'll be looking at sanctions that will be imposed. 
for example, sanctions against major retail banks, uh, how it will work out. Um, also, we have to remember, uh, Putin and uh, Xi Jinping were seeing praises of uh, Russian-Chinese trade going up to $140 billion uh, last year. Most of it is because of uh, um, Russian uh, supply, supplies of Russian gas and, and other commodities. Uh, but uh, Chinese-American trade turnover is $750 billion. That's, <laughs> that, that's a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. And I think the Chinese will be thinking twice before coming into direct conflict with the U.S. I think that a possibility of dialogue with the U.S. Uh, for them keeping the gates open, uh, that for the coming years will be the perspective. They still haven't finished modernization of their armed forces. They still haven't, their fleet is still a regional fleet, not a a blue water fleet as the United States fleet, uh, which means it can't operate globally, can't project power globally. So I think they'll be watching, but I don't think it means they'll immediately kind of send uh, their fighter bombers to obliterate Taipei. Okay, well, let, just to bring our conversation back, back to the European context for, for a moment, to, to what extent has NATO and European Union expansion eastwards contributed towards creating this crisis? Oh, it's just a pretext. Mm. Uh, Moscow loves to say, well, you see, this is uh, NATO encircling Russia. If you look uh, at kind of the geography of it. Uh, I think 8% of Russian borders uh, are with NATO countries and they are actually not even continuous. Uh, and um, this is just a pretext uh, which uh, helps to consolidate the undemocratic regime in Russia, uh, which gives uh, the military, the top brass, uh, a pretext to ask for more money. Um, essentially, it is a major philosophical point uh, for, well, at least for the current regime, which doesn't want to be allied, allied with the West, which doesn't want to adopt Western democracy. And NATO, with all, with all kind of caveats uh, about, let's say, Turkey, is still an alliance of democracies. It is a political military alliance, which Putin knows it does not invade anyone. It's a defensive alliance. It's actually very difficult to sanction an invasion because there's going to be 30 voices. You know, they have to come to a conclusion. Uh, uh, and I suppose that um, all this talk about provocations uh, and provocative enlargement, look, um, if you want to join NATO, it doesn't, it doesn't suffice, you know, to have uh, modern armed forces, you know, such and such uh, machine guns or such and such communications equipment. You have to have, and this is part of NATO accession process, you have to have civilian control of the military. You have to have uh, a democratic form of government. You have to have transparent military budgets. Uh, you have to have a lot of things which have nothing to do with the kind of technical state of your armed forces. So actually, if you have a NATO member on your border, that means that you have a country which you understand in terms of its military and security policy. And I suppose that this is uh, this has been uh, a long 
playing record of the Kremlin complaining about, essentially it's complaining about uh, the Soviet Union's defeat in the Cold War. It happened. One has to admit it, like the Germans admitted that they lost two world wars. So it has to, Russia has to take a new road. It has to reassess its security NATO. If you look back at what we were talking about, about China, China has a military force of 2 million people plus a million reserves and a 4,000 kilometer border with Russia. Hmm. About 100 million people live on the uh, Chinese-Russian border, actually three poorest provinces of China bordering Russia. You know how many people live in the whole of Siberia and the Russian Far East? 25 million. And in Chinese schools, they have maps which show about a million square kilometers of Russia unjustly taken away by the Russian Empire. So if I were a military thinker, I'll be basically kind of weighing the facts and saying, well, what threatens me more? A nuclear superpower, which has a 4,000 kilometer border with me, in which in economic terms is much more powerful than I am, or a German battalion stationed in a small village of Rukla in Lithuania. Well, make your calculation. Something else that's been prominent throughout this particular stage of the, the crisis and this ongoing situation is uh, disinformation from the Russian side. You, t- you touched oh. on this earlier. And you know, the, the, there's been a wide-scale amount of uh, disinformation going about. There's been uh, points where Putin was withdrawing troops from the Ukrainian border, yet NATO saw... Uh, no evidence of this. Similarly, the UK Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, said that this uh, situation could continue for months and months unchanged until Putin either decides to invade or withdraw. But then President Biden says an invasion could happen within several days. Is this level of disinformation leading to a huge discrepancy within the intelligence community and uh, gathering evidence that is being presented to, to leaders? I think we have definitely information wars going on mm. now. And of course, only people that have access to top level intelligence and top level satellite intelligence, top level humans, I mean, uh, human intelligence, ag- reports of agents, they have a clearer picture of what goes on. At a certain point in time, I thought what happened was that the Americans decided to play this kind of uh, force con- forces concentration against Putin. They started saying invasion is imminent, which sounded like, okay, Vladimir Vladimirovich, go on. You show you're powerful. Do your stuff and we'll react. Try me. And Putin stole. I suppose that there was a moment like that. But of course, it's very dangerous. You're right, Nathan, because uh, in such circumstances, accidents, could happen. I mean, these are, are accident prone. One shell, one explosion, actually it could be an accidental explosion of something, and boom, it goes. Uh, I think that uh, what we've seen in the last few weeks is such a massive uh, information warfare wave uh, that we can talk now that we've seen probably the biggest uh, military-related uh, information war uh, until today. 
I, I would say, because there is so much data involved, there is so much intelligence involved, uh, and so much is at stake, that eventually I think his, the history of that will be written and it will be amazing. So if, if Putin does end up deciding to draw this out for months and months, what benefit is there in doing that? Because it's not cheap to maintain such a heavy military presence. And there's a possibility that Western nations could think Putin's simply bluffing. I think that many Western nations already think that Putin is bluffing. Hmm. And also, I don't think it's a matter of expenses for Putin. Putin has $130 billion in state reserves. Now, that's data from January. So believe me, keeping 150,000 guys camped out near Bryansk, Voronezh, other places on Ukrainian border, that's that's not that expensive. Uh, But the danger, I'll tell you, um, lies elsewhere. And actually, it's a danger both for the West and for Putin, interestingly enough. Uh, The danger for the West is that Uh, Putin will be keeping this tension, kind of jacking it up and then lowering it. And then eventually some weak-kneed Western European politician will come and say, well, we have to put paid to that. We have to do something about it. Uh, We should stop this. Let's go to Putin and talk and let's go to Kiev and tell them to be reasonable. Mm -hmm. So Putin can use it to deepen, try and deepen the divisions in the West, trying to put a chink in this armor of, you know, the main lineup of allies that we've seen uh, in the last uh, few weeks. And that's the United Mm -hmm. States, the United Kingdom, Central Europe, Baltic states. Well, to some extent, France, I wouldn't say. They've sent planes to Romania. Uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, trying to get this kind of mediator, for example, the former Chancellor, Angela Merkel, coming out and saying, well, we're now going to arrange a real European peace, because you can't have peace without Russia. Mm-hmm. That may be his benefit. But there is a minus, there is, there is a drawback. Uh, you rightly mentioned, people are camped out, uh, basically a lot of them just in the field, uh, in the middle of nowhere. For, sec- for many, it's the second deployment within, well, less than one year. Because there was already massive deployment of Russian forces not as huge, but still quite big, um, in uh, spring 2021. Mm-hmm. And what is the benefit? A couple of phone calls with Joe Biden. I mean, Putin could have had them the asking. Mm. So if I were camped out in the middle of a field when I was a young officer uh, and thinking about what the bosses up there think, I'd be cursing them. Mm. While I'm sitting there, nothing happens. I don't want to die for Kharkiv. Believe me, I don't think anyone wants to die. Yeah. And um, basically saying, why? Mm. And you have to remember, in an authoritarian regime like Russia's, generals are an important, a very important audience for Putin. They are looking at him and saying, well, okay, what did we achieve? We are kicking hundreds of thousands of guys across Russia, the biggest country in the world, you know, to deploy 130,000 people to Ukrainian border, a few hundred thousand others are also kind of, you know, supplying logistics, trains are running, planes are flying, supplies, resupplies, so on and so forth. It's a whole mechanism. So you're doing it twice a year for what? 
if you're a resolute, Putin is commander-in-chief. So I think that if he doesn't achieve anything tangible, uh, well, quite a few people inside Russia will start asking questions and people with very big stars on their shoulders. Okay, so just to finish then, as this crisis continues to escalate and leaders continue their posturing, is a war in Ukraine inevitable? Perhaps not now, but certainly in the future. <laughs> Nathan, if I knew that, mm-hmm. I would have known a lot of other things. It would have been a very <laughs> successful um, you know, stock exchange trader. Uh, yeah. But I don't have these powers of prescience. Still, what I could say, and what I'm sure of, is that Putin will not leave Ukraine alone. As long as Putin is in the Kremlin, there's not going to be peace for Ukraine, and that means there's not going to be peace for the European continent. That I'm absolutely certain of. For Putin, and I recommend you go on the Kremlin website, there's his his piece about Ukraine, which he wrote last summer, uh, 5,000, words. Uh, In the middle of a pandemic, uh, a leader of a global nuclear power gives his secretariat a task to write 5,000 words about how Ukrainians and Russians are one people. That means that really concerns him. He sees basically making Ukraine subservient to Russia as his goal in life, as his historical legacy. So no matter what happens now between Putin and the West, probably they will come to some kind of understanding. Probably the West will just knock out this uh, this, this, you know, uh, Putin's bravado. But he will not relent. He'll keep on coming back to Ukraine. So if this crisis is over, just you know, drink a couple of coffees and another one will be on the horizon. Okay, Constantine Egger, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you.